The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, and welcome to another Best of History of Literature podcast episode. This time, we travel into the world of danger and intrigue, with corpses on the floor and detectives at the door. Three guests from the archives talking about mysteries, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Oh, it's springtime, which here in crazy town means it's freezing cold one day, agonizingly hot the next. And on those pleasant days in between, your nose and throat and eyes are attacked by pollen. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, I like the city very much. So we have a great lineup today. Our friend Jonah Lair is going to be here for a couple. Well, he's He's not going to be here. He was here before. We're going to revisit our conversation with Jonah Lair from last year. Uh, I think it was last year. He wrote a book called Mystery. He told us how mysteries work, why they are so compelling, and what our brains do when they get a mystery. We'll have a couple of clips from him today, and we'll go way back in the archives for an interview with crime writer Christina Kovac. That was a fun one. She was... A wonderful guest, very early in the show, first 100 episodes, I think. Former television producer who used that experience to write her first mystery, The Cutaway. And we will hear from Gillian Gill, the biographer of Agatha Christie, who will talk about the Queen of Mystery and the mystery of the Queen of Mystery's own life. Her disappearance, still unexplained after all these decades, although there have been many theories. Fascinating stuff. But first, let's hear from a listener. Subject to Jack, literature's gateway drug. Okay, let me pause there. (laughs) Hey, if I'm going to be a drug, this is the drug I would like to be. Also, cocaine. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. (laughs) I don't know why I said that. Don't use cocaine, people. I don't. Uh, Caffeine is probably better. Or maybe a drug that saves lives. Lowers cholesterol or something. Or helps children. I don't know. I don't know why I'm off on this day. Who wants to be a drug? All those side effects. I'd feel so guilty. You're surrounded by pain and suffering all the time. And you come with the potential for being abused by people who who are in pain. Ah. But aren't we all, in a larger sense, a drug to others? Maybe so. Maybe so. Back to the email. Dear Jack, thank you for making literature like this accessible to someone like me. I never went to college, but instead started working and volunteering right out of high school. While I've always loved reading, I usually found myself too tired at the end of the day to read anything. With four jobs, I often fell asleep as soon as I sat down. Ooh. Mm. This is me again, Jack. Look at that sentence. With four jobs, I often fell asleep as soon as I sat down. Sat down. Not as soon as I got in bed or as soon as my head hit the pillow. As soon as I sat down. 
That is a perfect depiction of total exhaustion. I could only stay awake standing up. But as soon as I sat down, if I stood up, I was maybe weaving a little on my legs, bobbing, wobbling. But sit down and you're slumped over sawing logs. Oh, I've been I've been that tired in my life, people. I am immediately on the listener's side, working and volunteering, shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone. Life is a slog. It's terrifying. It's hard work. And this listener knows it with four jobs. Back to the email. I never imagined myself having the time or mental power to read a heavy classic like Moby Dick, Brothers K, or Middlemarch. But over the past few years, volunteering from home throughout the pandemic has given me so much more time to read. In that time, I've read nearly 200 books. How did I know where to start? Your podcast. Through you, I have met Chekhov, Tolstoy, and Dostoevsky, Elliot, Joyce, and Ishiguru, sorry, Ishiguro, Melville, Hemingway, and Steinbeck. And of course, it would be criminal to forget Graham Greene. I've now had the time to read those heavy, intimidating classics, and with your added guidance, I have been into the minds of these incredible authors. It is especially rewarding to see how each generation of authors has influenced the next. Some books I have loved, others I have not. But regardless, I really believe that immersing myself in these novels has helped me better understand others and myself. Thank you for sharing the addiction. CJ from Utah. Well, CJ, as your gateway drug, let me tell you that I am pleased, as all drugs are, that you are now addicted to me or to us. And by us, I mean all these literature fans out there, the writers and readers and publishers and critics, the whole world of literature. Your reading list is like a who's who of my favorite authors. I can only feel good about putting these books into your hands. Many thanks to you for sharing your email, which lifted my spirits. And you are not alone. There are many people who have found this podcast who have written to tell me something similar. Yes, keep reading. Some you love and some you don't. It's different for everyone, but the process stretches you out. It makes you think. It keeps you going. It keeps you connected. It enables connections. Little sparks jumping from live wire to live wire across space and time. That's us, readers, and deep fusion of currents sometimes when we connect with a book or an author. Anyway, thank you again, and thank you to all my listeners who've spent the time to support the show, either through an email to me or a lovely review or sharing the podcast with a friend or by visiting us at historyofliterature.com slash shop, buying me a virtual coffee, or patreon.com slash literature and signing up for a small monthly donation. And now, let's move into the world of mystery. We'll take a quick break and come back with our first clip where Jonah Lair addresses the question of just why mysteries in literature and life are so fascinating and so potentially rewarding. Thank you. 
Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Do you think, I mean, I was trying to figure out if there's some reason why we've evolved to be curious. And one thing I thought is, you know, it would help us acquire knowledge and knowledge would help us become uh, uh, adaptable and and superior beings if we're constantly acquiring knowledge. Uh, Or also curiosity might lead us toward uh, potential dangers. If you're, you know, you see something that's not quite right. You under, I just watched an episode of Miami Vice where they walk into the room and they see a, a coffee cup and a donut that the, the assassin has, has stupidly left sitting on the floor and they realize that he's hiding in the back room and it gives them a, a, a sense of, you know, if they've solved that little mystery, somebody's here and it, it helps save their lives. But I'm wondering if, if we know, is this just theory or is there some way of knowing why it is that your son is so interested in mystery or or can you see it in the brain chemistry or what tools do you apply other than just my armchair quarterbacking here to determine what it is that pleases us about mystery? Well, I mean, one of the ways I explain in the book is in terms of prediction errors. So if you give if you study the activity of dopaminergic neurons in the brain which they help regulate our attention and you establish a pattern the brain will get bored by that pattern very quick because it understands it Mm. and so the brain is always striving to be as efficient as possible to be as lazy as possible to consume as little energy as possible and so from the brain's perspective if it can predict a pattern it's not worth paying attention to because we already understand it so instead what you find generates the biggest signals from these dopaminergic neurons is not the pattern we understand it's the pattern we don't it's what scientists call prediction errors so you establish a pattern and then you violate it, you Mm -hmm. break it, you give a reward we don't expect or you withhold a reward we do expect, that's when we pay attention. And I think that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective in the sense of if we understand something, we don't need to focus on it because we understand it. And so we should offload it and, and focus on what we don't understand. So the brain is naturally wired to be drawn to mystery and the unknown and the unexpected. And I think you can see this, you know, as I said, in its purest form in little children, who are most interested in mystery. You can look at this in terms of eye fixation studies. So you measure how long a young child will look at something as a measure of interest, even before they can speak. 
Um, and what you'll find is that they're most likely to stare at something they don't understand, something that breaks the laws of physics. Um, they have a, obviously a very, very rough grasp of the laws of physics. But if you show them something that violates it, that's what they're interested in. So it is one of the recurring themes of the science of attention, which is that we're most interested not in the predictable pattern, but the unpredictable one. And I think that's, you know, that's what drives the surprise egg phenomenon on YouTube kids. It's why the third act of Law and Order is always the shocking twist, because mm. that's that's what we're there for. That's what we want. Right. OK, so I see I'm looking at your book subtitle now, A Seduction, A Strategy and A Solution. And I can see the seduction pretty clearly that that when there's this disruption in the pattern, it arouses our curiosity because it's something that we need to solve. And it's something that that is not something uh, that we're lazily ignoring or, you know, it, it, it arouses like our interest. It's an itch you want to scratch, right? Yeah. You want to solve that pattern so you can ignore it. Right. And then I, I can see the satisfaction of a solution where once you do figure it out, then you know, you can return to normal and, and you can put this disruption aside and you can get back to other things that you need to turn your attention to. But what I'm not sure about is what you mean by strategy. How does that fit in? I think the strategy, I mean it more from the perspective of the creators, of the artists. How, ah. how I think I think through sheer instinct and talent and experimentation, I think there's a long tradition of artists reverse engineering the mind. Um, my first book, Proust was a neuroscientist, was really about, it was a speculative cohort about artists who anticipated some of the big ideas of neuroscience, um, you know, decades, mm. hundreds of years before, um, simply because they wanted to understand how the mind worked because they wanted to entertain their audience and they wanted to capture reality. Yeah. Um, and I think, in a similar way, I think artists have this very, very precise grasp of our psychology just just by trying to make good art, art that interests us, art that keeps us engaged, art that moves us, art that leaves us with a sense of wonder and awe. And that, by definition, requires them to have some model, some theory of the mind. And so I think the strategy of mystery is something that Agatha Christie understood very well. It's something that the writers of Law and Order understand very well. It's something that I think Shakespeare understood profoundly when he was creating his characters. Um, so I think the appeal of mystery as a strategy and how to deploy it for maximum effect, that's, uh. that's really what I mean in terms of the strategy. It's, it's what we can learn from all these artists who have been using mystery as a tool to engage and edify and and grab our attention for really thousands of years. Right. Okay. So the strategy might be the pace or the doling out of clues and information as the puzzle pieces sort of start to uh, put themselves together so that the the artist who's in command of their craft is able to make the experience sort of bridging that gap from the initial curiosity of the, the dead body on the floor or the, the mysterious theft or whatever, and the solution where we feel like all is right with the world and we now know that order has been restored. The strategy is how do you entertain people or how do you get people to follow you as you go from point A to point B? Exactly. You know, how you get people to follow you as you lurch from one mystery box to the next. Um, yeah. it's much easier said than done. It's very easy to watch star Wars and notice that George Lucas begins with a mystery box. What is the force? What is a Jedi? Who is this guy? Obi-Wan. It's mm. obviously much, much harder to actually pull it off. Yeah. 
Right. Are there examples that you found where people didn't pull it off, where, uh, I guess it's <laughs> in some ways, those are probably all the books that aren't published, but yeah. uh, are there any uh, mystery writers or anyone who had a hard time with this or who talked about the difficulties they had in either revealing too much too soon or or having other technical problems, or, or maybe it would be a, a draft, I guess I'm thinking of, where they would say, you know, the problem here was I screwed things up, I made the reader wait too long, or how do we know how the strategy is working other than people like it and it becomes a bestseller? Certainly there are great mysteries that don't become bestsellers. I think you can see, for instance, in the arc of Agatha Christie's career, she does have this peak, in my humble opinion, where she figures out the formula mm. and it's full of surprise and feels fresh. And I think, you know, she's a as she confesses in her autobiography, she struggled a lot with plotting. And I think plotting to her was was an incredibly difficult art. I think she got really good at it. And then I think towards the end of her career, she almost got too good at it. Mm. Came a little formulaic. And I think that's the, you know, that is the challenge for all to stay with the detective story. The challenge for all detective writers is it is, of course, a formula, but it can't feel formulaic because then it becomes predictable. My favorite Law and Order episodes are those they are still formulaic. You still get the mystery solved in the 41st minute and they're 42 minutes total, but they somehow don't feel like a formula. And I think that's that's always the difficult balancing act for the detective genre in particular. But certainly I think I mean, it's it's the general challenge of good art, which is finding the balance between on the one hand, you want to give people the unknown, you want to surprise them, you want to show them the mystery. But you can't make it too mysterious because then it's just confusing. Then it's just chaos and randomness. Right. So it's that it's that very difficult dosing question. Um, psychologists call it desirable difficulty. There's no prescription for it. I think the science can just identify it, but the science can teach you how to execute it. Um, that's where the art comes in. Mm. And there seems to be with the most popular mysteries where there's a detective. I mean, one of the things that's always fascinated me about the genre is the way it has two narratives going at once. You know, you have the the narrative that happened that led up to the crime or or the event, and then you have the narrative of the detectives or the police officers or whoever who are trying to recreate the story, and they're going forward in time, but they're also kind of building this narrative that's happened previously in time. And as a reader, you kind of get to see both at once, and sometimes it's it's fun to watch the detective, even if we're not that interested in what mystery he's solving, just because the detective is so much fun to spend time with and to watch him or her work. It seems like we want the detectives to be a little bit smarter than us, but not possessed of fortune teller powers or, or you know, it, it needs to be a mystery that we ourselves could solve if only we were a little bit smarter and could observe a little bit better. But it doesn't take great leaps in logic or lucky guesses or anything like that. Is that kind of, I guess what my question is, do we put ourselves in the minds of the detective to try to feel something good about solving this puzzle ourselves? Or do we like watching someone else do it? I think part of the allure of the Sherlockian detective, and I think the Sherlockian detective was actually invented by Edgar Allan Poe in the middle of the 19th mm -hmm. century. What makes that form so seductive and so perdurable is, I think, when you're spending time with a Sherlock, is the faith that it will be solved. Yeah. Um, I think that helps us get over the initial confounding mystery, right? The impossible crime. 
you put up with the first 30 pages of the story because you know Sherlock will solve it. And right. so it gives you the sense of faith and closure that you know in the same way the you know when people always talk about law and order being such a comforting formula on the one hand it makes no sense because these are grisly crimes. You know like there's nothing comforting about it. But what is comforting about it is the assurance of closure. And I think that's because part of the detective trope is this notion that in the end justice will be restored we'll find the bad guy we'll solve the impossible crime and i think that's why we want that deductive detective who's going to solve it even if we can't um as soon as sherlock appears on the scene we kind of we can kind of let out a breath and be like ah okay we're in good hands here it's going to be yeah. solved in yeah and in some ways the the greater the mystery at that point the more it just raises the stakes it's like watching a trapeze artist or something where it gets more and more exciting because we come to know that the more confounding the puzzle seems to be it just means the solution we're in good hands with conan doyle that the solution is going to be all that more the more satisfying and it has to be confounding right if it's predictable in the first act you're not going to stick around for the third um, so it has to be full of surprises. It can't be the person on page 12 who seems obvious. Right. That's the one you know for sure. So it's, you know, it's those two things in parallel. It's the impossible crime. We, we, we as a reader can't explain accompanied by the detective, accompanied by the detective who we know will explain it. Mm, that was good stuff. Jonah really delivers the intellectual goods. He'll be back for another clip later in our show. Okay, clip number two comes from Christina Kovac, who told us about her favorite mystery writers, three women who inspired her, and about her work as a television producer, and what she used from that experience when writing her first mystery, The Cutaway, which tells the story of a missing woman, a beautiful young attorney who has disappeared, and a television news producer who becomes obsessed with finding her. For the protagonists in the novel, putting together a television segment opened the door into a mystery. For Christina and me, a door was also opened to a discussion of storytelling in the world of television news. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that I was really struck by is how their mission, in this case, instead of blowing up a bridge... You could say that they're trying to get at the truth, but you could also say they're trying to tell a story. And right. I hadn't really thought before about what it's like in the television news business to have to tell a coherent and compelling narrative and then to do that with all of the tools that are available, the video. And I, I guess this, this kind of morphs right into a question about a cutaway. So why don't you explain for the listeners what a cutaway is and how that became the title of your book. So in, in television, when you're shooting an event, for example, like last night, um, the president spoke. And so there's a head-on shot. And that head-on shot, that's the camera that focuses on the president and everything that he says. And that's the shot that you'll use to tell the story of what the president is saying. Mm -hmm. There are cutaway shots. Is there, that's a second camera. And that'll turn on the audience. So there's many different ways of doing a cutaway shot, but, but as it applies to my book, a cutaway, a, a second camera will shoot the audience reacting to the president. Um, mm. You would have seen last night the, uh, the soldiers um, watching the president. You know, mm -hmm. maybe they were wrapped or maybe they were 
worried about, you know, what he was saying, how it would affect their future, whatever that is, it adds nuance to the story. Right. So, so those are the two camera positions we call them. Now in the, the story of, in my novel, the cutaway is a shot. It's a reaction shot of a woman watching someone talk. It's right. very simple. Yeah. And this woman, her picture, uh, that video, that cutaway shot, Virginia remembers seeing it. Um, but she can't remember what the main story was, why this woman looked so, was so caught up in whatever this person was saying. And then the woman's picture crosses her desk and she's missing. Mm. So it, it nags at her and it nags at her especially because she's so good at what she does. And she so often remembers everything that she sees and she can't figure out why she can't remember this and why, and why it bugs her. So that's the cutaway. And then I also like, the way the word sounds, you know, yeah. um, it's about a woman essentially who's kind of cut away. cut away, right out of society. So, you know, when I read the seed where she was talking about the cutaway and she was going back to look for it, it reminded me, and I don't know if this was at all, uh, prominent in your mind. It actually reminded me of that video clip of Monica Lewinsky yeah. where she was in the beret and standing on the, on the line, yeah. you know, which yeah. I think those of us who were alive in the 90s saw probably 10,000 times or something. And it's one of those things where so much of that whole story was based on just seeing the way that, you know, she was nodding her head and the, the familiarity that she had. And it kind of opened this window, which if we hadn't known the rest of the story, I don't think anybody, you know, it would have disappeared into time. But because that had become such a such a sensational story then seeing just the you know the body language of the two of them as they interacted and in, on television and it it kind of made me think how the discovery from a, a television news producer's point of view the discovery of a shot like that 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 gives you that depth or that interesting angle on a story it must be thrilling if you if you're lucky enough to encounter something like that well, it's really fascinating that you said that because you're the only one who got that. Oh. Out of all the people who have read my book and all the people <laughs> talked about what is a cutaway, no one's ever got that. Was that was the best example of a cutaway shot, and that always stuck mm. in my mind. Mm-hmm. How did that? Who was the editor? I think it was at one of the networks. I don't remember who it was, yeah. but who was the editor that remembered that shot? That remembered that? I mean. When you see all of the video coming in from all of these presidential pools, I yeah. mean, there's just thousands of hours. Yeah. And to, and there's so many people in these um, rope lines. And, and that it was astonishing that someone put two and two together. And then, and that is what drew the story together, um, what made it so coherent in people's head. They saw, oh, yeah, he knew this woman. I yeah. can see him knowing this woman. Yeah, and, and she had a kind nuance. of confidence. You could just see kind of the relationship, and it it led me into these thoughts of like, oh, and they've had to hide it, you know, but people close to them maybe have kind of guessed, and it just... Yeah, she looked happy to me. I mean, yeah. she just looked like, you know, she just really, really liked this guy. Yeah. You know? And it it's funny because you wouldn't think of awarding the person who found that cutaway, you know, a Pulitzer Prize or anything, but in some ways it almost could have. It almost contributed to journalism in a sense of, yeah. you know, letting us understand is a very simple thing, but it it just had such uh, resonance. 
Right. Ah. I have a question about just how you decide what belongs in a news story. And in this case, you could see where this there there must be a lot of missing people all over the city. Mm-hmm. Is it based on what you know the audience will be interested in? Or is it... Are, uh, are you asking this within the framework of the story or within, do you mean just generally speaking? Well, just kind of generally. So if I if I understand it in the book, it's kind of because this producer is caught up in the idea of who right. this woman is. And so she's kind of driving it forward. But I'm wondering, is that how it works in practice, typically? Or is there a, a view that there's an objectively important story? Or is it all kind of a more of a feel? Or is it based on an understanding of the audience and what they're going to find interesting? Or how do you decide no. which stories get the treatment that this story got? So every every news station, every um, especially local stations, have their own kind of editorial guidance, so their own kind of feel for um, what their audience likes. That's what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. What do they want? What locations or jurisdictions are they particularly targeting? Like I remember when I was working at Channel Four for a little while, they really wanted to get into Fairfax County, but, you know, oh, really into right. Fairfax stories because the numbers weren't as good at that time and there was room for improvement, things like that. So there is some aspect of that going on. Mm-hmm. But the the truth of the matter is there's so much violence against women. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, particularly when you're looking at like a very large metropolitan area, that the bias is really what you decide not to cover, right? right. So not going to cover, like, say, campus sexual assault. So we're not going to cover murder-suicide. So we're not going to, I mean, so there are those kind of, like, sort of blankety things. Mm. And then there's stories where the police are kind of saying, hey, you know, this chick's missing. We need some help because we think something really questionable was going on. You know, I don't want you to report this yet, but, you know, um, maybe she was a witness in a, something or maybe her boyfriend was something or you know so there's some underlying thing the police are kind of pushing you in a direction um and then sometimes it's just a very simple idea that there's just something something about that story that just grabs a reporter or like the the unusual circumstances or like the you know a jogger in rock creek park which you you wouldn't expect that person to go missing while they're jogging Right, right. So, so you know, um, I, I think it really it's it's kind of hard to answer that question because, you know, people talk about the media and right. the the media is has a thousand tentacles, mm-hmm. you know, and all those tentacles have their own brain and they all have different driving forces and needs and different people working um, in it. Some people could really care less about missing people or crime. I've been in uh, newsrooms where they just wanted happy news. You know, that's what they wanted to do. You know, we got to do, you know, more featurey stuff. I've been in places where, you know, bleeds it leads. Um, so every, every place, every news director, um, they all have their different ideas about what they believe news is. And that's why you see so many different news stations having like a different flavor. Why some people say, Oh, I only watch, you know, Channel mm-hmm. 4 or I only watch, you know, CNN because they all do kind of have their own thing in this particular within the novel what you have is a very experienced executive producer with very good instincts who has a history of understanding violence against women from her own experience and from her time on the street so so um you probably haven't caught up 
to like the whole um interior arc of the character yet but but she has a an experience and a knowledge that kind of feeds into her intuition and when you get a producer who has that going on and mm. they and they have um the scent for a story then they usually follow that story to completion right right and is it important or uh does it does it help to drive the narrative is it important to a television news station if there's compelling video oh god yes yeah <laughs> i mean sometimes right. they just put stupid stories on just because like because some idiot jumping so... out of something or <laughs> yeah i right. mean you know it's a visual medium the the hardest thing is always and this is what i tried to do in the style of the the novel but um so when you're writing to tv you're writing to pictures always it's the pictures that's telling the story right and you're just supplying the words that kind of provide the background noise for for what you're seeing so um you know tv essentially tries to recreate news by showing you the pictures uh, recreate what happens so when i created this executive producer this woman who was so good with pictures and is just born to be a television person in a lot of different ways kind of um embodies it I tried to make her voice very uh, have a lot of image, mm-hmm. a lot of movement, a lot of um, action. Um, she, she's very concrete and detailed about how she talked about things because she's applying her words to pictures she sees in her head. So that was kind of a difficulty or an extra layer that I tried to add to her voice. But I think it came out pretty well. Yeah, um, yeah, but I, as, I picked up on that. Yeah, as TV people, I mean, you do you talk to pictures. Yeah, and you start to think of that, and and as you're walking around the city, you're probably kind of mentally doing that uh, in the back of your mind. Right. If you're if you're an extraordinary producer like she's supposed to be. Okay, there we go. I think at that point, I pitched the idea of a new book to Christina, and my loyal producer very astutely said, "Let's leave that part out, Jack." Ha ha. Thank you, loyal producer. I'm glad you're helping to save me from myself. Lord knows I need it. Self-sabotage is to Jack Wilson what squirming little worms are to big plastic bags full of restaurant towels and dish rags. Speaking of which, our next segment is with... Not not speaking of squirming little worms. Speaking of self-sabotage, our next segment is with Jillian Gill, who told us about a very successful woman who nearly sabotaged her own success, Agatha Christie, the most successful mystery writer of all time, probably. Certainly on the Mount Rushmore of mystery novels, mystery writing, and literary success. And at the height of her early fame, she suddenly disappeared. Kidnapped? No. She was gone under her own power. She disappeared herself. We'll hear the details of it next. So, we are now in 1926. Agatha Christie has published six books. She's become well-known. Her book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, was a huge success. And then she disappears. What happened to her in those... 10 or so days? First of all, perhaps that I should say, no one knows. Yeah. She never told anyone. Right. Or if she told them, those people that she told didn't really say. Yeah. So what was going on in her personal life before she disappeared? Well, that's what, to me, is the key. Because, of course, in my book, I also, every book, every biographer, 
Spectacularity has to have an account of the disappearance, yeah, a right? A theory or um, a description of the theories that are yes, out there. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I have mine, and I actually have a revised one, mm. which came upon me in the last two days, and which I'll lay on your uh, listeners. Um, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, 1926, she has moved to the sort of the, the suburbs of London. Her husband is increasingly involved in golf and his life in the city. He goes to the city every, and you know their, their marriage is becoming less and less um, united, shall we say. They're both, they're living more and more separate lives. Mm-hmm. So her mother dies. Mm. Now, I said that Agatha Christie was passionately fond of her mother, but I think it's, it's more important than this because one of the keys to Agatha Christie is she believed that you could not understand people that no one knew what she was thinking and she didn't know what anyone else was thinking Mm. but there was an exception in her life she believed that her mother could in a certain way read her mind Mm. and this was immensely immensely comforting to her yeah her mother was home it's not just that that mother lived in the actual physical structure of the home, but her mother was home. Her mother was someone to whom she never needed to explain anything. Her mother loved her, adored her, believed she could do anything in the world, was the main, mainstay of her emotional life, and her mother died. Yeah. And Agatha was bereft, and the, physical, the psychological stress was exacerbated when she insisted on going down to Ashfield, uh, family home and clearing out the place for either rental or sale um, of all the accumulated um, Mm. uh, possessions. And she went into a profound, profound depression. And And during this time, I just wanted to tell the listeners she's about 35 or 36 at this point. That's correct. Yes. Um, She's in her middle 30s. And in the previous years, she had gained weight. She was no longer a beautiful long head self. She had cut her hair. She was um, an ordinary, middle-aged, slightly overweight woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, in her, in her looks. So she is expecting her husband down on the, on the seventh birthday of their child, their, their only child, Rosalind. And she's expecting him to come down and in some sense rescue her. You know, he's going to ride in. She's always seen him as this romantic figure. Mm-hmm. Um, the epitome of the strong, silent male, the British version of that. <laughs> yeah. Silent and unknowable and fascinating and mysterious, right? Yeah. She expects him to come home, come to her and take her away and in, in some way of his own replace the emotional intimacy. And of course, the exact opposite happens. He comes on the child's birthday, announces to her that he has fallen in love with Another woman, 25, young, a very beautiful 25, 26-year-old secretary whom he's been seeing in London, and he intends to divorce Agatha, and he intends to marry this woman, Nancy Neal. And Agatha is, well, bouleversé, as they say in French, overwhelmed, taken completely in shock. I mean, this is is a little bit extraordinary that she had not guessed. She really Mm -hmm. had not guessed. Mm -hmm. And she refuses on religious grounds and on because of the extremely strong rapport between her child and her husband, a rapport that she 
does not share and really regrets not sharing, she refuses to divorce. And Archie is absolutely furious. And they go through periods of, of reconciliation, etc., etc. But it becomes clear that there is no way of getting past this. She becomes more and more sad, more and more depressed, can't eat, can't sleep, is in the most wretched state of mind. And at this point, she disappears. Hmm. Her car is found at the bottom of a hill on the South Downs, uh, near Newland Corner, um, not far from her home, but even closer to the house where she knew her husband was spending the weekend with his friends and with this woman, Nancy Neal. So the placing of the of the car, it's rolled down the hill. It contains her overnight case. It contains her fur coat, but there's no Agatha. So the assumption is that um, by the police that she has wandered off and there is this massive search for 10 days. The whole area around that is searched by dogs, by volunteers, uh, Dorothy Sayers and her. Uh, her husband were two of the people who literally, oh. you know, went crashing the gorse, you <laughs> I know, didn't know, to find, find yeah. the body. Yes, <laughs> yes. It was huge. And a lot of rather, um, by British standards, a, a large amount of uh, police time um, was spent and a lot of taxpayer money was expended on trying to find this woman who turns up eventually to have spent the time in a very ritzy Harrogate hotel. Harrogate is in Yorkshire. Uh, where she had been doing crosswords and uh, um, playing bridge and um, <laughs> dancing and singing and leading a totally normal life. And she was finally recognized because the press, the British press, went completely ape. And her case was splashed all over, particularly the Daily Mail, which is um, a, a sort of notorious scandal sheet. Anyway, she was the, the co-celebre of the day. And then when she was found, of course, um, the reaction was absolutely bitter and vituperative, yeah. and she was subjected to the most awful slanders. And the most most people felt that she had um, staged the whole thing right. as a kind of revenge on her husband, who for ten days was being sort of discovered first of all as the grieving um, husband. Then of the possibly not so grieving because probably adulterous husband and then as the husband who needed to get his wife, um, uh, needed to lose his wife, shall we say, in order to, um, all of this is going on. He's been put through hell. So the idea has been put forward notably in 1998 by Jared Cade, a writer who wrote a book on this, that it was an elaborate plot on her part, a kind of revenge plot. Um, that she had cooked up. To frame him, or just to, to put frame him, him through. Yeah, yeah. Ah, make him feel, you know, that he had been emotionally uh, distanced to the point of uh, hostility to her. Cruel. And she actually writes a whole book about this uh, under a pseudonym, which we'll come to later, about the deterioration in their relationship and the cruelty. And she has recognized him as her childhood fear that's to say, the gunman. As a child, she had this recurring nightmare of a person coming in this sort of strangely 18th century costume with a tricorn hat, etc. And he would sit down at the table and she would suddenly realize that this person was actually 
a disguised form of one of her most close friends, her mother, her sister, her brother, and that this was a direct threat to her. This was her nightmare. And as she tells us in her autobiography, it, it had become clear to her that her husband, Archie, was the incarnation of her childhood nightmare. He was the gunman, the person whom she had trusted, she had loved, she had adored, and who turned out to be her most devious and terrible enemy. Thank you, Jillian Gill. You can hear more of that interview, including our discussion of Christie's amnesia claimed or actual or feigned. It was claimed anyway. And Jillian's theory of what actually happened during those fateful weeks. I think I might have a theory or two in there as well. And finally, for today, let's go to our final clip. This one is from Jonah Lair again, where... We dive into some more great mysteries and appealing ones, like the mysteries of Hamlet, Harry Potter, and of course, the mystery of humans themselves. Okay, so how can we translate the lessons that you've learned in studying mysteries as an art form and into the real world? It sounds like there are other examples you're able to see with people who aren't just writing and reading mysteries? You know, one that probably crops up for me the most in my everyday life is the mystery of human beings. Mm. And this is something I kind of approach in the book from the perspective of Shakespeare, who he uses a technique called strategic opacity, which is a thing that's best illustrated by Hamlet. So Hamlet as a narrative had been around for hundreds of years. Shakespeare made one crucial alteration to the original story of Hamlet, which is that in the original version, the murder of the king, Hamlet's father, is a public fact. Uh, his uncle suspects him of seeking revenge, so Hamlet pretends to be crazy, so his uncle doesn't suspect him of seeking revenge. Of course, he seeks revenge. What Shakespeare does is he makes the murder of the king a secret. Everyone thinks he was killed by a serpent bite, but Hamlet still pretends to be crazy, which all of a sudden makes no sense because his because the murder of the king, Hamlet's father, is a secret. His uncle doesn't suspect Hamlet of knowing and thus seeking revenge. So all of a sudden Shakespeare takes this character who initially was, you know, driven by the most primitive primal motivation, right? Seeking revenge for your murdered father. Mm. And now he's a mystery. Now he makes no sense because he's still pretending to be crazy. But for reasons we can't really explain and justify. And his mom seems to think he's crazy too. It's not clear Hamlet knows if he's crazy or sane. So he takes this character who's on the one hand, very, very simple in the original version and makes him very, very complicated, very mysterious, very unstable. Um, and I think that's what makes Shakespeare's Hamlet so interesting. Mm. Um, he becomes strategically opaque. And this is a technique Shakespeare uses again and again and I think it's a reminder to me in everyday life that that people are mysteries. And I think that's something we want the people in our lives to be predictable. We want to be able to, you know, we want to know why they do what they do. Uh, we neglect the power of circumstance, context. And I think just to tell myself, 
people aren't predictable and that's what makes them so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's something I constantly remind myself is just the reason we're drawn to Shakespeare's Hamlet is the same reason we shouldn't just get frustrated when people don't do exactly what we expect them to do. Mm-hmm. And maybe the reason why it's so frustrating when other people try to explain something that we've done in an easy way. I don't know if you've had that experience, but, you know, where someone says, oh, well, you just think that because of X or you just did that because of Y. And and you think, actually, there were about nine different things that probably went into why I just did that. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's a well-known human bias that when people do something, we always default to their character. We say, you know, they were speeding because they're not careful. They were late because they're careless. She fell because she's clumsy. And instead, she may have just fallen because, you know, there was a stone that she didn't see. She may have been speeding because she was in a rush to pick up her kid from school. He may have been late because you know, his his child was late getting out of school. I mean, there are a million reasons. Circumstance is always changing. And instead of defaulting to the simplest explanation, which is that someone is X, we, you know, we should take into account the fact that the world is really complicated and people do strange things. Mm. You know, Shakespeare understood that is what makes people interesting. That is what makes them magnetic. That is why we want to watch them and be with them, be with his characters and why we keep revisiting his characters. Um, but it's a lesson that's all too easy to forget in everyday life, um, mm. that the mystery of people, it's not a bad thing. It's its actually what makes life worth living. And it's what makes literature worth reading. I think Uh, I'm thinking of all these different examples Two come to mind. But maybe before I I give you my two, why don't you tell me about Harry Potter, how he fits into this? You know, Harry Potter is another thing I've discovered, like many parents through my children. I Mm -hmm. think it was uh, Mm -hmm. it was a series I'd always lazily dismissed as. as, (laughs) Well, how, how old were you when they were coming out in your 20s? Um, no, uh, in my late teens. Yeah. I vividly remember being an undergrad in New York City and watching children line up at midnight to get book seven on the day it was released and and being somewhat dismissive of it. And then I started reading my daughter, Harry Potter. Mm. This is now six years ago and just being mesmerized, falling in love with the narrative Mm. Um, and then rereading it again the next year with her. And then we read it again three years later. So I'm now beginning it with my son. He's mercifully graduated from YouTube Kids into Harry Potter. So this is now my fourth go round. And just the richness of the characters, number one. So I think we talked about the mystery of Hamlet. I think Snape um, is Rowling's Hamlet, uh, an incredibly complex, mysterious character who only gets more mysterious the more you read the book. both on the first read and then on your second and third read, you understand Snape even less. I think Harry also becomes less obvious. On the one hand, it's this very simple tale. It's the classic frog who turns out to be a prince. And yet I think Rowling is doing something very interesting with textual interpretation. Mm. And, you know, and there have been some great academic studies that I cite in the book as talking about Harry Potter as a lesson in hermeneutics and the power of reading and rereading texts and the difficulty and kind of inherent ambiguity of texts. And that's, I think, what Dumbledore's, what the prophecy is all about, which, of course, she borrowed from Macbeth. Um, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here as a yeah. Harry Potter fanboy, but, <laughs> but I think, I mean, the basic 
lesson of Harry Potter is that one can reread it again and again and again. Like all great art, it's it's an infinite game. James Carr's a theologian. He's got this great distinction between finite games, which is Monopoly, it's baseball, it's football, it's games you play to win, and infinite games, which are games you play to play. And great literature really is an infinite game in the sense that you never solve it. In fact, the more you play it, the more you read it, the more mysterious it becomes. Yeah. No one reads Hamlet and thinks they figured Hamlet out. No one, I think, if you're reading Harry Potter well, you don't think you figured Snape out or Harry out or Dumbledore out. Um, they become more mysterious. And that's what makes it an infinite game. Right. And for the first time reader, the whole thing is pulling us along of who is Harry really? Why is he the way he is? Why is he the chosen one? Are these people around him good? Are they helpful? Are they not helpful? It's everything is and everything is brand new to him. It's all a big mystery of you know, how did how do I travel into this new and strange world? Absolutely. It's an incredible act of world building. And just to circle back to your initial point about the joys of experiencing the world and literature and language uh, through your child's eyes, I think there's there's a special joy about reading the book with a young child, the Harry Potter series, because you see it also just works as a straight narrative. I mean, Rowling was very influenced by detective stories. She's since gone on to write kind of classic mm. detective the novels. Yeah. And you can see the influence of the detective story just because each book is essentially structured like a whodunit. Um, and I think so. So a child will experience the book just on the level of the whodunit. Um, you know, who is responsible for this terrible thing happening at Hogwarts? And and as an adult, you're mesmerized by the grownups, by the characters, by these characters who are so rich and complicated and and full of motivations you can't parse. Yeah. So to be explicit, I said I had two examples. One of them was the opening of Gatsby, where he talks about uh, how his father had told him that unless you've walked in a man's shoes, you don't really know what he's like or something like that. And then just the mysteriousness of Gatsby himself and the way that he's sort of this elusive and, and shadowy character, uh, which I think is part of the, the big appeal of that book and the draw of that book. And the other, which is, it actually is almost written like a detective story in a way um, with uh, the narrator, although it's, I, I think, uh, I, I wouldn't want to push that analogy too hard, but it's it's almost like a, he's almost a, a doctor of uh, John Watson or something in <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other one uh, that came to mind as we were talking earlier was, I don't know if you're familiar with the James Joyce story, The Dead. Oh, God, I haven't read that in years, but yes. Yeah. And the way that when he's looking at his wife on the stair and he thinks he knows her and knows what she's thinking, and then it turns out she's thinking something different altogether. And just the beauty, the 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 severe beauty, the the sorrow as well as joy of uh, the revelation that we never really know what's inside someone else's mind, that we just cannot ever really share it as intimate as we might want to be. And as as well as we think we know someone, it's just something that's always going to remain a, a bit of a mystery for us. Just the, the beauty of that story. So as we're coming up on the holidays, I'm always... Uh, oh, man, Jack, uh, you killed me because now I want to go back and rewrite my book. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's a perfect example. I mean, I'm going to go read The Dead now, but now I'm going to... Yeah. Maybe for the second edition, I can insert that because that's... I, I mean, that sounds like a <laughs> of um, The Mystery of Human Beings. Okay. 
Okay, there we go. My thanks to Jonah Lair, Christina Kovac, and Jillian Gill. All those full episodes are in our archives, if you'd like to check them out. Thanks also to CJ in Utah. We are glad to have you in the community of History of Literature listeners and in the community of great readers of great books. Okay, what can I promise you about what's upcoming? Kafka. That's Monday. Elizabeth Bishop, Basho in the World of Haiku, Kierkegaard and Goethe, and a look at the years 1967 to 1971 with a novelist who was there for all of it those years, fighting the good fight, and who's based a few different books on that dynamic period of time. We will also have a look at Dylan Thomas soon, and a look at the question, what is American literature? And much, much more. So please do subscribe and tell all your friends and neighbors. But you know what? Your neighbors might not be home. I know that's not always the case. Not always easy to get in touch with your neighbors, right? So the best thing to do is to write a note that says, listen to the history of literature. Wrap that note around a brick and just toss it through their window. Wait, that's no good, is it? They'll probably They'll probably hate the podcast for that. Okay, here's what you do. Throw the brick through the window. That's really the only way to to get their attention these days. But on the note, write, don't listen to the history of literature. Problem solved. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.